Jumping back into the gospel according to John this morning. I'm sure it's probably been a little bit confusing <laughs> to you as to the order that I've been doing things in, you know, over the last few weeks. And the reason I decided to do it is because you'll have a verse or two here that speaks about uh, the apostles, and you have a verse or two that speaks about, you know, believers in general and that sort of thing. And there are different characters that kind of come and go uh, through these chapters. And so I just thought it might be a better way to approach it as we uh, began to work on uh, these, these chapters over the last several weeks. Uh, I apologize to you, it's been somewhat confusing to you, but anyway, I mean, we took Peter's denial, because it's spoken about in three, four different places in the Gospel of John. So we approached that, and then we've done some other things since then. Uh, We have gone to the portion here where Jesus' trial has actually taken place. And uh, you know it takes place in two phases, actually three phases, in a sense. Uh, so that's where we find ourselves. We're going to be looking at two parts today that are separated by each other for, by a few verses. Chapter 18, verses 19 through 24, and then 28 <clears throat> through 40. <clears throat> so let me read this. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Jesus... Uh, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, and then you have this, you know, the not denial by Peter, uh, you know, once again, the third time actually there in between. Uh, but then verses 28 and following, uh, Jesus is the sent on to Pilate. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not uh, enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews uh, said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show that what kind of death uh, he would be uh, going to die. And then we pick up. So Pilate entered uh, his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. Why? Uh, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews 
but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he said this, he said, Uh, He went back to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. As I read through there, you know what, I, I, I just saw about 10 more sermons I could get from this particular passage. Uh... It's just amazing the, uh, the depth that the Word of God speaks to your heart uh, in, and I just hope that all of us have a habit of reading Scripture and reading through Scripture on somewhat of a regular basis. Let me tell you, there's probably nothing that you can do that's going to be better for you and better for the church and better for the believers around you than to come more and more knowledgeable of the Word of God. And I just want to encourage you in that. That we see this, that Jesus' trial actually took place in several different phases. It began at the house of Annas, which we studied a little bit last week. Now Jesus is taken on to Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, who was the official high priest at this point, because he had been appointed by the Romans because they had deposed Annas at some point for some reason that is unknown to us. But Jesus didn't just have one trial, he had a number of different trials before a number of different people. And we understand this, that the purpose of a trial is ultimately to establish the truth about the person and their involvement regarding a particular matter and as to whether that person has committed a crime or not. And we need to understand something. No one has shown at all that Jesus has committed any civil or social crime. (laughs) He's just preaching a message that the Jewish leadership does not like and they don't want to be propagated. It's quite likely, we mentioned this last week, that uh, for some reason, at some point, the Roman official had, had deposed Annas from being high priest. Uh, and, say, and they had appointed Caiaphas in his place who happened to be his son-in-law. Uh, but it appears as though Annas still had a lot of authority and power of the Jewish people. I mean, this is the first place that they took Jesus was to his house. Uh, Now they've left there, and they've gone to the house of Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And one of the things I just want to bring to our attention this morning is all of this stuff being orchestrated the, the way it is, and it involved not only one group of people, but two groups of people who very much were at odds with each other typically over just about everything, the Jews and the Romans. It was a joint effort on their part. And the fact that it was a joint effort uh, should be surprising to us at the very least. Because they didn't agree with one another on anything. We know that this took place 
for God's reasons, but we also know this, that, that these two, two parties that normally were very much at odds with one another, they came together for one reason, and that was because they saw some advantage to themselves by doing it. We understand that the purpose of the Jews for bringing the Romans into this picture is this, is they from the very beginning, before the trial even began, they had determined that Jesus was going to die. But they did not have the authority to execute him. That was one of the things that was limited to the Roman governor. He was the one that determined life and death. If they had their option, they would not have bothered to take Jesus to the Romans. But it just goes to show you that they had predetermined the end that they wanted to see take place. Jesus' trial before the Jewish officials was not a real trial. Its end was determined before it began. The fact that they have formed somewhat of an alliance in this whole picture is an astounding and amazing fact. They both had their own reasons for it. They both had some advantages as they thought they were going to gain by doing it. Maybe, maybe the Romans thought that uh, uh, by doing it, in a sense, that the, the Jewish people would owe them something now and they would be able to cash it in sometime later on. But the very clear purpose of the Jewish officials, including the Romans, is this, is because they had determined from the very beginning that Jesus must, in fact, die, and they could not do that on their own. Talk about a mock trial. And I want to remind us that John's not the only gospel, the only gospel that covers this period in the ministry of Jesus, that all four, all three of the other ones do, too. So to get a complete, more complete picture of what's going on, the only way to do that is to look at what each one of them say about this particular thing. And uh, in Mark chapter 10, we read these verses. This is verse 33. Jesus had, had, had foretold exactly what was going to transpire. He said this. He said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. He said that before it even took place. In other words, all that's taking place here took place because God decreed that it would. I mean, all of these human actors are part of this picture, and they're working out their own thoughts and their own will and their own determination and whatever, but God is the one that's manipulating this whole circumstance. Luke adds some things to the mix that we need to look at. He records that the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, as he's, as he's interviewing or, you know, examining Jesus. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The men who held Jesus mocked him, struck him, 
and having uh, blindfolded him, struck him on the face, and they interrogated him, saying, Prophesy, who struck you? So Jesus is being beat in the courtroom. You ever hear people talk about the humiliation of Christ? It started when he became a man. Do you understand that when Jesus took upon himself the nature of a human being, that was the beginning of his humiliation? And this just adds to it. And remember the words that Jesus had already spoken to those disciples while they were still in the upper room. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Have you ever heard the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? Ever thought much about it? What it means, where it came from? Most of us will probably not ever shed a drop of blood for the cause of Christ. It's easy for us to forget history. We've had many, 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 uncountless numbers of brothers and sisters in the past who have given their lives because they profess faith in Jesus Christ. There will be people in this world today, as we speak, as the words are coming out of our mouth, more than likely we're having brothers and sisters or both die because they refuse to recant their faith in Jesus Christ. The blood of the martyrs indeed very often shows itself to be the seed of the church. Mark tells us that they also spit on him. Now, can you imagine being spit on? Has anyone been spit on since you were a kid? I know when you were a kid, you probably got spit on once or twice. <laughs> but when was the last time you saw an adult spit on someone? Or you've done it to someone else, or, or they've done it to you, maybe. I can't remember ever being spit on by anybody, you know, once I was beyond maybe the fifth grade or something. I mean, spitting is something that people just don't do because it is very derogatory. I mean, you're looking very much down on the person, and you're saying the person, is, this is what you're worthy of. You're worthy to be spit upon, basically. And I'm just going through these things so we'll remember and be mind, reminded of, this, of all the different trials and tribulations that were involved in Jesus' trials and tribulations. I mean, what he really endured. And remember in John 15, 20, he, he had told these, these fellows, he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Wherever Jesus goes in the world today, he is often followed by a trail of blood. Maybe our turn will come. 
we're told. As we said, I think already that one of the officials actually struck Jesus. Can you imagine striking Jesus? Can you imagine striking God? We have to think that there's probably a special place in hell for that person. (laughs) But at the same time, we understand this, that perhaps that person actually came to faith before they died. And let me tell you, if they did, they're in heaven with him now. There is no sin that we commit other than the absolute constant and continual and unending denial of the God who made us and his son that he sent into the world. Things are changing in our land, and I'm, and I'm glad that I'm hearing a few of our PCA pastors speak out and come to the same conclusion. And they're saying the culture that we're confronted with today is very different than anyone that Americans have ever been confronted with before. That persecution of the church, if things continue on the pathway they're on now, that eventually it will bring persecution of the church, perhaps in ways and manners that you and I can't even conceive of this morning. There are a growing number of people out there who absolutely hate you just because of what you believe and practice. You may be one of those that is called upon to give your very life for what you believe. Don't believe that it could not happen to me. Don't believe it could not happen in this land. It very easily could. I mean, Jesus endured through all of these trials and tribulations, just horrible things, absolutely humiliating things. And I want to remind us of something this morning, and this holds true to everything we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, I want to warn all of us of believing that we, if we had been there, that we could not have done some of the things that have been done here. You're fully capable of all of it. God restrains you. God restrains me. J.C. Ryle describes Jesus as a willing sufferer. He willingly endures the suffering that he's going through. How willing are we to suffer for Jesus? But I think there's a principle but that we always have to remember when we consider all of those things, and it's this, is what was our part in this picture? Our part is this, is we made all of it necessary. You 
I mean, it's easy for us to look upon these Jewish leaders and condemn them. It's easy for us to look upon Pilate and condemn him, etc., etc., etc. But ultimately, who put Jesus in the position that he's in and who led him to the cross and who murdered him was every single person who believes in him. He did not die for the sins of the world. He died for our sins. So we can't blame it on the Jews, and we can't blame it on Pilate. They were just puppets being used by God to accomplish what was, was predetermined, what was necessary to save us from our sins. So who are the guilty ones? We are. But even in our guilt, God shows his grace and mercy. Unless we lose track of things, too, I would remind us that this whole thing was planned out by the triune God. Everything is happening according to his perfect will and purpose. Not one jot or tittle has been added or taken away from what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit determined would be at the very beginning of time. It's not that God has lost control in this situation. He's in absolute and perfect control of this situation. God is just using these people as the agents to accomplish his predetermined purpose. Now, I want to say to you this morning, very often people would have the idea that God uses people like this as puppets. He just has them on a string and just leads them where he wants to go and this, that, and the other. That's not what we're talking about here. They are free agents to do that which they desire to do. So what we see them doing is what they want to do. No one's making them. God is not forcing them. They are doing what their own free will determines for them to do. So don't think of them as puppets on a string, because that just is not it. They are free agents. Their sin is having its way with them, just as it would be with those, other, those apostles, and just as it would with us, if not for the grace of God. They sent him on to Pilate. The only reason they did that is because they couldn't do what they wanted to have done. They could have punished Jesus in a number of ways. They could have done everything. They could have beat, him, beat the mess out of him to the point he was almost dead. They just couldn't actually kill him. They could have sent him out of the country and told him never to come back. They could have beaten the mess out of him which they did to some degree. The only thing they couldn't do to him was kill him. This is the only reason they sent him to Pilate. They could have done everything else. Pilate was the procurator of the province of Judea. 
He was appointed by the Roman Emperor Tiberius. He was the fifth Roman prefect of the Roman province of Judea. According to the authority of Rome, he had full powers over life and death. He was not an upstanding man. He was wicked and he was evil. He had ordered the slaughter of a number of Galileans in the temple as they offered sacrifices to God. And these priests and these other leaders of the Jewish people knew it. And now they're making themselves bedfellows with him. Philo, the Jewish historian, describes Pilate in these words. By nature, he was rigid and stubbornly harsh in a spiteful disposition and exceedingly wrathful, prone to acts of violence, outrageous, spiteful treatment, constant murders without trial, ceaseless and grievous brutality. He was not a good man at all. Very often people believed that he gave in to the demands of the Jews because he knew that if, they didn't, if he didn't, then they might cause him trouble. I don't think that's the truth at all. The fact of the matter is Judea had a history of rebellion. I think he probably did it because he was in fear of Tiberius Caesar should another one of those episodes take place during his watch. Pontius Pilate was in no sense a moral man. You see in here, however, there is some resistance on his part to this whole picture. And what I would say to you there is this. Is he knows that he's being controlled by these Jewish people and he hates it. But he has no choice. He knows that they are using him and there's not really anything he can do about it. We're told that the Jews themselves didn't even enter into his residence when they got there. <laughs> because they were afraid that if they did, that they would be defiled and they would not be able to eat the Passover as a result of it. So they stayed outside. And they sent Jesus inside. Jesus knew what was going on all along. We need to remember this too. Earlier in the book of John in chapter 12, as Moses was lifted up or lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, describing the manner in which he was going to die. Jesus knew this all along. All that is unfolding is a result of the covenant of redemption agreed upon by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people will say, well, the Jewish leaders, in a sense, were kind of coerced or used in a wrong way by God. The only thing God did was let them do what came to them naturally. 
rather than restraining their sin, he let their sin guide them. We know this. We know that Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to die that death. There's a conversation that takes place between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? We understand this. That in fact, Jesus was in the line of David, right? That in fact, Jesus had to be in the line of David. Because he was to be king. David was noted as the best king of Israel ever, probably. Even though he has faults and failures, he had a very great heart for God. Luke informs us that the accusers told Pilate that Jesus had said that he himself is Christ, a king. Christos, which literally means anointed one. It's also the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. God's promised deliverer of Israel. Remember all the way back in John chapter 5, the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well? And she said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus has revealed this to certain people along the way, even though he hasn't revealed it openly and publicly to everybody. Remember the Caesarea Philippi confession of Peter. Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. However, Jesus at this point has not come out and made a public statement of the fact. These have been statements that he's made individually with people and very often privately. So you wonder how in the world the Jewish priests and Pharisees came up with this charge 
they came up with this charge because they knew that it would nail Jesus' coffin, not his coffin, literally. But. Because as they pictured Jesus as this great Messiah, what does it do? It threatens Rome, etc., etc., etc. We need to understand something, that Pilate never would have done what he did unless he saw some advantage to himself and to the Roman Empire as a result of it. As far as he was concerned, who was the king of the Jews? Caesar. <laughs> Caesar was his king and Caesar was everybody's king in the Roman Empire. Therefore, anyone claiming to be the king of the Jews would be considered to be a threat to Caesar and therefore to his empire. But in his conversation with Pilate, Jesus throws him a curveball when he says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then that was followed by Pilate's probably best known statement or quote, what is truth? As if truth is relative. Truth, my friends, is not what God, what man says it is. Truth is what God says it is. Unlike Jesus, Pilate was very much of the world. He had power and authority over a lot of people. from a human perspective. But he had absolutely none at all beyond the realm of the physical world. He was a puppet. Jesus, on the other hand, his power and authority resides in the heavenly throne room. Ultimate power and authority over everything that he shares with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to the trial, the eventual crucifixion of Jesus, who do we blame for it? Do we blame the Jewish authorities? Do we blame Pilate and the Romans? Not hardly. Who do we have to blame? Me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. Me, the sinner. Remember that when we think about Pilate. Remember that when we, were, we think about these Pharisees and these Sadducees and others of the priesthood. That ultimately, 
We killed Jesus. We played a part in it. Even a more important part, a more central part, Because God has shown us grace. And Jesus had to die to pay for our sins. Somebody had to do it. Right? Well, we know something of God's truth that Pilate didn't know. He said to Jesus, what is truth? As if it's relative. Depending on who you're talking to, what the truth is. And that's true when it comes to truth established among people. But it's not God's truth. God's truth is not relative. God's truth is definite. He has revealed his truth to us in ways that other people don't know it. I don't know, you know, it, it, it still baffles me when I look around at unbelievers and see how they behave. How can people do things like that? How can be people be so immoral? But you know what I, the question I should be answer, asking more often than not, and that is why do I continue to do the things that I do knowing what I know? I mean, it's so easy to deflect things on the world around us. The world is the cause of the way it is now. The world has created these problems. World, 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 world. But I want to remind us of a, of a very important and special truth this morning. There is a sense in which Christians are most guilty of all. Because our salvation created the necessity for him to be born as a man, to live as a man, and to die as a man. We can't look upon the world and say, why in the world did you do to my Savior what you did? Who killed Jesus? We did. He died for us. And I want to remind us this morning that our own sins, my sins, key state and sins are grievous enough that if God had chosen to save me and me only, Jesus still would have had to do everything that he did. And that's true for every single one of us. 
No exceptions. So I want to remind us again this morning because we go to these passages and we wonder how the Jewish leaders were, why, how they could possibly do what they did to our Lord and how could Pilate do what he did to our Lord, etc., etc., etc. And maybe very often we should be more often asking ourselves, why do I continue to do what I do? Because ultimately, Jesus died for us, not for the world. The only difference between us and them is we are forgiven. That's it. How, when we think about that, can we be condescending toward other people? And yet we are, so often. I mean, have we owned up to this? Can you honestly say to yourself, I killed Jesus? Let me just tell you, if you can't, you don't know yourself. You're fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. But there's far more to this story. His trial, trials and tribulations are coming to a head very soon, within just a few days. Just a day or two at this point. But the advantage we have is we know the rest of the story. What if the gospel ended with the crucifixion of Christ? What hope would we have? None. But we always have to remember the rest of the story. The complete story. And in the completion of that story, the utter and absolute forgiveness of our sins. Past present, future. I'm convinced the very best thing that we can do for ourselves constantly, continually, is preach the gospel to me over and over and over again.
You've heard me say this. The way this culture is going today, there, you know, it's easy. There is easy. Listen to me. This easy from American history to argue that Christianity is what has made the United States the greatest nation that has ever existed on this planet with freedoms like no other people have ever known. Christianity is to thank for it. Let me tell you something. That is not a message that the world out there wants to hear today. I have a feeling that the persecution of the church is just getting started. It may take a while. But at the very least, you have to understand something. It, in fact, is gaining steam at this point. So living our faith becomes more and more critical and important in every aspect of our life. Now we understand this. We understand if God's determined that's what will happen, then in fact it will. And we can't stop it. But does that mean we can't do anything? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We need to stand for Christ as Christ has stood for us. And I'm going to tell you this, that it means in some ways giving of your life. Maybe not literally. But it means giving your life to him. To be used by him in whatever manner he sees fit, even if it means martyrdom. But one of the things that kept Jesus going here was this, is he knew that God was in control. God was in absolute control of this whole situation, even though humanity looked upon it and thought it was, he lost control. Praise God. He's given Lori and I a, a wonderful life, a life that I don't know that we can improve upon it in any way, shape, or form. It's a gift from Him to undeserving people. And I know you feel the same way about yourself. How great it is to be a child of the living God. There is nothing better. There's nothing else that comes close. Praise Him in your life, in all that you say, and in all that you do. Jesus stood for you. Now stand for Him. Amen.